The kakadu plum is an Australian native superfood containing 100 times more vitamin C than oranges. So why have you never heard of it? PR. No one's drinking a kakadu smoothie? I'm JB Smooth, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a giggillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit at and slash hypergig for details. Hey, girlfriends. It's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to The Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Too Much Information is a production of iHeartRadio. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Too Much Information, the show that gives you the secret history and little-known facts behind your favorite music, movies, TV shows, and more. We're your trivia tangent tour guides. My name's Jordan Runtog. And I'm Alex Heigl. And today we're going to talk about The Truman Show. I saw it again recently and was reminded how amazing it is, and... Initially, I thought there's really no specific reason why we're talking about this movie today. It came out in 1998. There's no big anniversary, no reboot or sequel on the horizon. But then again, this is also the perfect time to talk about it because I'd say it's one of the most terrifyingly prescient movies of the last 25 years. The Truman Show predicted the reality TV craze, rampant product placement, the surreptitious invasion of personal privacy and data mining, and also the thorny issue of whether to exist purely for yourself or for an audience. Are you doing it for you or for the gram? So in an era when reality is becoming increasingly hard to ascertain, there's really no better time to discuss The Truman Show. Plus, it's just so damn good. It's so clever and well-crafted and creative. I was a screenwriting major, and this was really one of the movies that made me want to go to film school, these kind of high-concept plots. It's almost like a Kurt Vonnegut short story. Yeah. Uh, What do you think about this movie, Heigl? I think it's great. We watched it at some point during lockdown and it is really good. I think it kind of falters around the end, but it is just such a great concept. Yeah. It foreshadows Carrie's transition from maybe the heir apparent for Robin Williams, like manic personality into like the heir apparent of Bill Murray's sad sack <laughs> persona. And I love it. I mean, Eternal Sunshine is one of my favorite movies. Um, and uh, so this kind of gets at the same you know, he's such a, I think he does get short shrift as an actor, especially now that he's back into doing those f***ing Sonic movies. But <laughs> when he taps into that well of sadness, yeah. it's so effective. And this movie is so good at that. And Philip Glass. I'm a big Philip Glass Oh, nerd. yeah. So that, that song, um, Truman Sleeps from this is oh, just yeah. so good. I mean, the movie, it does, it taps into this really human phenomenon who kind of think of themselves as the hero of their own story. And that can also be good, but can also be egomaniacal as far as, you know, empathy and things like that. 
Mm-hmm. I feel like at one time we've all wondered if we're Truman. <laughs> have you ever felt that <laughs> way? Have you ever suspected that you're in a in a fake world that's a TV show centered around you? No. I think I constantly assume that I'm on radio. I talk to myself constantly. I think that's the reason why I've never been mugged because I just <laughs> am always having animated because I'm also Italian. So full hand gestures, loud, not under my breath, like normal volume conversations with myself in public, always walking around. Um, and it's gotten worse with age. So no, I think I'm permanently mic'd up. It's really the perfect training for being a podcast host, yeah. just talking with no audience. Uh, but unlike me, we actually do have an audience right now, or at least that is what our benevolent overlords at iHeart tell us. So we should just dive right in. From the divisive U.S. congressman who grew up in Truman's IRL house to the time Jim Carrey almost died on set, the gritty, violent first draft of this show, to the practical reality of living in a sunless dome. <laughs> Here's our hashtag for the episode. And even the psychiatric disorder named in the film's honor, here is everything you didn't know about The Truman Show. The Truman Show was conceived by Andrew Nichol, a New Zealand-born screenwriter who was living in London. And befitting his amazingly paranoid premise, this guy is, as you might imagine, somewhat anxious. His former literary agent described him as, quote, the king of paranoia. And in a 2008... That was his agent. That was his former agent, I should say. A man nominally on his side. Former former agent. So we don't know what happened there. Uh, In a 2018 interview with Vanity Fair, this agent recalls a time when they were going out pitching the Truman Show script at a major studio and a valet took their car. Again, this is at a major studio. Andrew Nichol was very reluctant to hand over his keys to this valet, saying, well, he's wearing a valet uniform, but we don't know if he'll actually bring the car back, do we? Again, the valet at a major million-dollar studio. (laughs) So it makes sense that this was the mind who created The Truman Show. And he began with this notion that had been eating away at him since childhood. What if everything that we see around us is just a charade? (laughs) I'm just I'm picturing the scene in Annie Hall when the kid playing young Woody Allen is depressed because the universe is going to end <laughs> someday. Like, it just seems like I, I would love to have known this guy as a kid. Uh, and Andrew Nichol later explained, I think everyone questions the authenticity of their lives at certain points. It's like when kids ask if they're adopted. And so he had this germ of an idea of a counterfeit world. And then he also had this concept of constant surveillance that he added to this stressful stew. And it all coalesced around the idea of a television show. And this was the early 90s, just prior to the advent of reality TV. And he actually says that he finished the script just weeks before MTV's Real World premiered in 1992. So, yeah, this is really something that was not as, by any stretch of the imagination, as run-of-the-mill as it is now. Yeah, I mean... This whole thing is just going to make me depressed because of how grossly prescient it is. Um, Nichols' other films are also preoccupied with these themes of technology and isolation. His first film was Gattaca, which I maintain is an underrated gem. Then he made Simone. You remember Simone? Sim 1, Sim 1, 0, N? Do you remember that movie? Al Pacino is a, like, a tech guy who creates a virtual actress. Remember that? Sort of, a little bit. I did they no do that? Didn't does. like a vodka brand do that too, where they like digitally created a spokeswoman? Yeah, I think that's been really common recently. There's been a lot of like computer generated influencers who have gone out on Instagram as like a social experiment. Um, and they made the terminal. 
Hank's reference. Ding! Remember the terminal? All right, moving on. Um, yeah, this early script. Good Lord. The idea began as a one-page treatment called The Malcolm Show in 1991, which he then fleshed out into a full script. This early version barely resembles the one that we know and love. It was a sci-fi thriller set in New York City, which is nothing close to a utopia. In real life or in the script. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Truman was supposed to be younger, barely out of high school, kind of swapping the midlife crisis aspect of it for a teen crisis, and uh, a burgeoning alcoholic. So that's fun. <laughs> uh, crimes are staged for his benefit. This is getting grimmer and grimmer by the second. There's a scene where a rape is staged for him to witness, and he doesn't intervene. And after he leaves, all the actors wonder why he didn't help, which I guess is a riff on the Kitty Genovese thing. Oh, maybe. Maybe, I mean, possibly. Or, I, I mean, I, yeah, I have no idea how this would possibly factor into his character development. So maybe. Uh, Nichols told the BFI at one point that he was seeing a prostitute. The character of Truman, I should say. Which, uh, sure. Uh, the scene in which he confronts his wife after he starts to realize that his life is a facade was a lot more dramatic and aggressive. A big part of the plot hinged on Truman and his wife needing to conceive a baby so that the show could continue. Um, you'll remember it is a sort of tossed off line in the final version, but in the early draft it is a major goal of Christoph, the creator of the show, who is, um, the godlike egomaniacal director played by Ed Harris. You know, I like Ed Harris. I like everything he's in, but that dude really goes for the capital A acting. Pretty blue eyes though. Yeah. Pretty like a lady. <laughs> so he finds as he passes through the exit door in this fake world uh in this draft he finds Kristoff and the rest of the cast on a rooftop and attempts to strangle Kristoff and the other rest of the cast holds him back also to the bfi nichols said i followed him once when he went through the sky he went into his own souvenir store there were cardboard cutouts of himself it got even more warped in a strange way he even jumped on a studio tour tram with the guy driving it, giving the facts of his life that he didn't know. That's cool. I like that. Layers upon layers. But even in this early stage, this version sparked something of a bidding war between the power players in Hollywood at the time. One producer offered to give Nichols' agent his own Rolls Royce if they could land that ah. studio. Scott Rudin, the noted Hollywood producer dubbed Hollywood's biggest ass by my former employer, Page Six, he won. God love him. <laughs> Ugh. As with the best art, the Truman Show is an amalgamation of many different influences. Some of them are obvious, and some are a little more unexpected. The basic story of a man unknowingly being forced to live in an alternate reality is the plot of sci-fi novelist Philip K. Dick's 1959 book, Time Out of Joint. You ever read Philip K. Dick? Not really, no. That man uh, did a lot of speed. Uh, Let me tell you that. Like, he literally supposedly had a bowl of uppers on his kitchen table <laughs> at hand, like M&M's. A state of mind exemplified by much of Jim Carrey's 90s output. Yeah, a lot of his stuff is about slowly losing your mind and realizing you're, the world that you live in is not the world that you think you do. And a lot of that is because of speed psychosis. Anyway, sidebar over. Sorry. <laughs> Moving on. <laughs> and speaking of sci-fi... As with all good sci-fi satires that make you feel a little uncomfortable, a little queasy, The Truman Show bears traces of the granddaddy of the genre, The Twilight Zone. Nickel's screenplay has been compared to two episodes of The Twilight Zone. One of them is a 1960 season one episode called A World of Difference, in which a businessman discovers that his office is actually a film set, and he's been unwittingly living in a world where he's a movie star. 
And the whole episode is his fight to get back home to his family, uh, who I don't think are in on it. I, I, mm. I, I haven't actually seen this episode. The other episode of The Twilight Zone, it's a later one from the 80s called Special Service, features a man who discovers that his life is secretly being videotaped and is a huge hit on a cable TV network. And hmm. so that's interesting. Some other critics have also noted the similarities between The Truman Show and a 1968 short film by Paul Bartel called The Secret Cinema. And for my money, this is way more sinister than The Truman Show. The short follows a secretary whose life is being filmed and shown to her friends and family in private screenings. Somehow, <sighs> the whole, like, smaller scale deception is much more personal and much scarier to me. I really don't like that. Um, interestingly, Nickel, screenwriter, said that he never heard of that film or the aforementioned Twilight Zone episodes when he wrote The Truman Show. Um, he grew up in New Zealand in the 60s and 70s, and I have no idea if that stuff would have traveled over there. So I buy it. I believe it. Mm -hmm. But this is really interesting. The Truman Show director, Peter Weir, who directed Witness, you note, that's our first Harrison yep. Ford mention this time around. Uh, bing! Director Peter Weir claimed that a crucial influence on the character of Truman, spiritually, if not visually, was Michael Jackson, who was also an influence on Sonic the Hedgehog. So Michael Jackson's influence truly knows no bounds. Uh, <laughs> Peter Weir was quoted as saying, you watch the Truman show, and I mean, Jim Carrey did a fantastic job, but Michael Jackson is Truman. He's who I based him on, and he is the nearest thing to Truman. Which... Makes a lot of sense, considering Michael Jackson basically spent his whole life on camera with next to no privacy, which, you know, inarguably contributed to his problems. We'll leave it at what that. What problems? That's another podcast. <laughs> yeah, I just imagine reading that in the, um, like the movie trailer guy voice. Had Michael Jackson actually been cast in this movie? Michael Jackson is Truman. <laughs> Uh, okay, moving on. Speaking of who actually ended up playing this role, Jim Carrey. Jim Carrey brought his own unique perspective to the role. He is a newly minted A-lister at the time with all of the horrifying intrusions that that brings with it. Uh, his drive was really wild. Did you ever see that interview where he, uh, on Oprah, where he pulled out the $10 million check he wrote for himself? Yeah, I'll wait, tell that story. I, mean, I didn't put it in here, and I'm really glad you mentioned it. Before he made it, when he was in Canada, he uh, wrote himself like a $10 million check with no date on it, just to himself. Like, Jim Carrey to Jim Carrey, $10 million. And I don't know what he wrote in the memo field uh, for The Mask. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> um, for Man in the Moon. Um, for Bruce Almighty. <laughs> what <laughs> Jim Carrey movie could we swap in there? Dumb and Dumber. <laughs> yeah, for Dumb and Dumber. He, uh, he buried it with his dad, which is like our second weird... Whoa. Canadian comedian with daddy issues uh, after Austin Powers and Mike Myers. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. What a, you have a man on the moon story? Oh, you were on set for it, right? Yeah. I had a, a family member who worked at Universal at the time that he was playing Andy Kaufman in Man on the Moon. And there was that new documentary that came out on Netflix a few years back about just how he went so crazily method that he would just throw. They weren't even tantrums. He just would get like sort of violent on set, especially when he was playing... Blackout drunk. Well, yeah, he was playing Andy Kaufman's alter ego, Tony Clifton, the kind of, like, 
angry lounge singer. And yeah, I was there one of the days when my family member came home and was like, hell of a day at the studio. The security guards at the gate said there's this like drunk guy in the tux berating them and they were going to call the cops on him and we had to like, you know, told him to call off the dogs and stuff. And yeah, he was just like throwing chairs and stuff around on the set. Yeah, he, he, uh, he goes hard. Like Ed Harris, he yeah, goes hard. I, I truly hate those Sonic movies, but I'm happy that he at least seems to be working again. Because do you remember his existential crisis moment from a few years? Well, five years at this point. Do you remember that? Mm, dimly. This is actually like directly related to Truman's show. I, it, it, he showed up on some red carpet and someone was like, you know, one of these chipper red carpet people was like. It's probably uh, me. <laughs> Uh, okay, yeah, so this is a new... Fa- why was he at Fashion Week? Anyway, he was on the red carpet, and someone was like, uh, hey, hey, Jim. Uh, and he, he this went viral, because he was like, there is no me. There are just things happening. Here's the thing. It's not our world. We don't matter. There's the good news. <laughs> and then the rap caught up with him and asked him... At, this was a TIFF, Toronto International Film Festival. They were like, what are you, what are you talking about? Could you elaborate... I don't know, man. I think he was doing a lot of psychedelics, but this quote is so fascinating. At TIFF, the rap uh, editor-in-chief asked him what he meant by that. He said, as an actor, you play characters, and if you go deep enough into those characters, you realize your own character is pretty thin to begin with. You suddenly have this separation and go, who's Jim Carrey? Oh, he doesn't exist, actually. There's just a relative manifestation of consciousness appearing, and someone gave him a name, a religion, a nationality, and he clustered those together into something that's supposed to be a personality, and it doesn't actually exist. None of that stuff, if you drill down, is real. He was, I, you know, whether or not he's trolling with this is, I, I don't, don't know, because he, he was... Well, he was promoting a documentary that was made about this man of the moon crisis that he mm. had. And so he was, I don't know, man, I hope he's okay. But anyway, that's all germane to this when he became extremely famous and apparently lost part of his mind. Um, he made like, what, oh, seven he, studio movies in three years, right? And they were all hits. Ace Ventura, Mask, Dumb and Dumber were in one year. Um, Jesus yeah, so he's suddenly an A-lister. He's being constantly hounded by the paparazzi. He talks about when he and his then-wife, Holly Hunter, went on their honeymoon to Antigua, only to find this private resort just completely mobbed by cameramen. He would say in a 2018 interview with Vanity Fair, those were the kind of things that happened periodically that made me realize, okay, my life will never be the same. Uh, it's almost as if celebrities lose their civil rights when they become famous, which, well, that hasn't aged well. There's great advantages. I've certainly been shown incredible amounts of love. There are certain times when there's just no sympathy for someone who has done well. Um, it was also like he, he said he related to the role because it was his first big serious dramatic turn. And so uh, in a very broad, perhaps overly literal sense, it was his way of breaking out of the comedic dome in which he found himself. But we might have gotten a very different, perhaps more intense method turn on this. Uh, Gary Oldman, a friend of the program, Gary Oldman. Andrew Nichol was hoping to direct this, but Paramount wanted to... They, he hadn't directed a film, so they were like, we're not going to give you tens of millions of dollars to make this. So they asked him to do a film test. Um, Scott calls in a favor. Scott Rudin calls in a favor to Gary Oldman, who comes in and does a screen test as Truman. 
It's T- just tell this horrifying. Tell about the oh, scene. Oh, it's this horrifying first draft thing. Uh, Truman starts to suspect when his world is fake, so he grabs a baby from a s- complete stranger's baby carriage and threatens to drop it. Just dangles it. Unless the mother admits that she knows his name. This woman, understandably, becomes hysterical, and Truman hands the baby back, to which she says, thank you, Truman, which confirms his suspicions. So, yeah, imagine Gary Oldman in full-on 90s method insanity, dangling a baby. (laughs) Um, And demanding you admit that you know his name. Yeah. Good lord. He he he's he was never seriously considered, but he was very gracious about reading the script. He said, "Look, nobody cares about me in this. The star is the script." God, I love. God save Gary Oldman. <laughs> but despite what I can only imagine was a truly horrifying scene that he shot, which unfortunately I haven't been able to find on any kind of special features. Screenwriter Andrew Nichol was passed over for the director's chair. The original, I think, $80 million budget was just deemed too high for a first-timer, especially one that they felt was just going to make an art movie. And for that kind of money, they wanted a blockbuster. So they went with a heavy hitter. They went initially with Brian De Palma, which is kind of a weird choice. But he also did Scarface, Carrie, The Untouchables, and Mission Impossible. So I guess it reflects the original dark, gritty, suspenseful version of The Truman Show. If this was the movie that was going to be set in New York, I guess I can kind of see it. But ultimately, Brian De Palma dropped out, probably due in part to this change in direction. They wanted to make the movie less dramatic, a little more funny. Many other directors were considered after Brian De Palma's departure, including Tim Burton, Sam Raimi, Terry Gilliam, Barry Sonnenfeld, and Steven Spielberg. And I guess David Cronenberg apparently turned it down, which is interesting. And the To st- make uh, Existence. Existence? Oh, yeah. Starring Jude Law. And- Remember? Remember Existence? <laughs> Sorry. And the studio apparently turned down Brian Singer, uh, and this was all in favor of Peter Weir. And... Peter Weir is really the man responsible for lightening up the Truman Show. And he later said, While I admired Andrew Nichols' screenplay, I felt its dark tone and New York setting undercut its credibility. And there was also a certain amount of logic to this, too. First of all, from a production standpoint, he said that building a set of New York was way too expensive, as well as way too dark and gritty. So he changed it to an idyllic town to make the movie feel less sci-fi. But also it makes sense from a story perspective, too, because he was thinking, why would millions of people want to watch Truman 24-7 if the show is this grim and depressing setting and story, which is a really good point. And logic, as we'll find, is a really big watchword for Peter Weir. For him, that was a crucial element of making this high-concept script work. He would later explain, I wanted the logic of the piece to be absolutely watertight. I wanted to have thought of every question that an audience might ask, because I knew that if we didn't answer them, even in small details, then it would open up a crack in the piece and they would say it couldn't happen. And he put some serious thought into the sort of logic of this world, and he wrote a 10-page history of the show within a show, The Truman Show, which he says frequently cleans up at the Emmys, a big Emmy winner. And he also did a major history of this Kristoff character, the great director in the sky who created The Truman Show. And according to Peter Weir's history, Kristoff came from a documentary film background and won an Oscar for a documentary he'd made on the homeless population in which he'd rigged up cameras all around uh, either a crash pad or a shelter, I don't know which. And that's what kicked off Kristoff's interest in capturing people at 
all times. It's sort of this hyper-reality. And Christoph's initial concept for The Truman Show was just supposed to be a one-year thing. It was supposed to be filming a baby for the first year of its life to help market baby products. But once the show took off, they built it out. They added out this father character who had a garage with tools that they could sell. Again, it's all about the product placement and the marketing money. And then that evolved into a whole house. And then it eventually spiraled into a whole town. And Kristoff started in on this whole cradle-to-grave-of-man concept, which the Truman Show ultimately became. So... Peter Weir and screenwriter Andrew Nichol worked together on this fresh approach from the movie, taking it out of New York and into this cozy, uh, utopian dome studio. Uh, Jim Carrey had commitments to film Liar Liar and the Cable Guy before he could get to the Truman Show. So Peter Weir and Andrew Nichol had time to tinker on the script before he was available. And they went through something like between 12 and 16 drafts I've seen before Peter Weir was ready to shoot. And he had a few meta concepts in mind that he toyed with. To add a whole other level of, again, meta weirdness, he briefly toyed with the idea of playing the role of Kristoff himself, the director <laughs> in the movie, the director of the real film, was going to play it himself. But that fell by the wayside. My favorite concept is one that he had for the theatrical release. And you know how in The Truman Show there are these interstitial moments of people in the real world like watching the show and talking about it. Peter Weir planned for projectionists to stop the film at one point during all the screenings and cut to video shot by cameras installed in every theater so that the audience could watch themselves watching Truman before then cutting back to the movie, just to add this whole immersive meta layer to it, which is... I love I, that stuff. I, I, I admire the concept, but, I mean, the execution It's like William Castle style of, like, how do you break down the walls between audience and... Uh, did you ever read about all that stuff? No. Man? Oh, he's the B movie guy. He was. Uh, if we're t if, now that we're getting into this highfalutin bridging the gaps meta stuff, William Castle was a B movie horror guy in the fifties and sixties, and he actually had a ton of this stuff that's so funny. They were all called Vision. There was like a Percepto Vision, and was he the Smell like Vision 3D guy? Was a thing. Yep, Smell Vision. He had a thing for the a movie called The Tingler, which was about this little like. I don't know, it was like a, I think it was like a little creepy monster, and then they would stop the film in the middle of the thing and be like, ladies and gentlemen, the tingler is loose in the theater. You know, do not panic. Like, And then they had, <laughs> um, they had like joy buzzers wired into the theater seats, so it would buzz everyone's seat at the same time, and people would just like scream and flip out. I love it. It's like when I all the found stuff. footage horror became a thing, and for all the test screenings, they would um, make people sign NDAs so they could use those footage of like people freaking out in the theater and then put that in the trailers. Oh my god. A rich text for analysis, as they told me <laughs> in college. Uh mentioned earlier that Jim Carrey was sort of the heir apparent to the motor mouthed mania of uh Robin Williams. And this is interesting because Robin Williams was originally considered to play Truman, which makes a lot of sense because Peter Weir had just done Dead Poet Society, which is the Oh Captain, my captain, twinkly eyed Williams drama inspires a bunch of kids to Major in English? I don't remember what the point of that movie was. That was his big breakthrough into big dramatic roles. Yes. So it would have, you know, it kind of, it almost makes a certain amount of sense that Carrie, this was his big breakthrough into dramatic roles too. But Weir fell in love with Jim Carrey after seeing him in Ace Ventura. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Robin. Have you seen Ace Ventura? <laughs> oh, I gotta have way. You gotta get this a guard chopping yeah. executive. Yeah. Bring me Ace Ventura. <laughs> I want to film 24-7. Yeah, this dense, multi-layered film about the very nature of identity. 
and how media impacts that. Bring me the guy who talked out of his ass. <laughs> uh, yeah. We're going to take a quick break, but we'll be right back with more Too Much Information in just a moment. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh, my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. Every week, we'll pick a new song from the list and talk about their placement on the revamped 2021 list. We'll also have guests join us, ranging from the artists themselves to the producers or simply other writers like ourselves who voted on them. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to The Ronettes Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside and Britney Spears' Baby One More Time. There's so many fascinating stories that have been forgotten, like Midnight Train to Georgia, starting with a phone call to Farrah Fawcett, or how the Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs inspired Kelly Clarkson's banger Since You've Been Gone and Beyonce's Hold Up. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Elia Connie, and this is Family Therapy. My best hopes, I guess, identify the life that I want and, and work towards it. i never seen a man take care of my mother the way she needed to be taken care of. I get the impression that you don't feel like you've done everything right as a father. Is that true? That's true, and I'm not offended by that. Thank you for for going through those things, and thank you for overcoming them. Wow. Thank God for the limits. Every time I have one of our sessions, our sessions be positive. It just keeps me going. I feel like my focus is redirected in a different aspect of my life now. So, how'd we do today? We did good. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy. Listen now on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Oh man, this is where this film starts to get a little on the nose. True man is derived from the old English words for faithful and trustworthy. But uh, yeah, true man. Get it? 
Was Joe Sixpack taken? Kristoff wants him to be real and true. The only thing that's on the show that's real, true man, get it, was Norm L. Real Guy taken? I wrote a bunch of these, so I'm reading all of them. And Truman is also a wink to uh, Hollywood. The dome set is located just north of the Hollywood sign in uh, Burbank. So um, Beautiful downtown Burbank. Listeners of a certain age will get that Rowan and Martin laughing joke. Paramount has studios in Burbank. So that's how you get Truman Burbank. My last joke of these was Tim Celltown <laughs> taken. Get it? Like Tinseltown? Anyway, uh, we we're, we're saw echoes of Charlie Chaplin in um, Ace Ventura. <laughs> Which, okay, sure. Um, and Carrie took that to heart, bringing this kind of uh, wide-eyed, bemused, Chaplin-esque quality to the character of Truman. He said in an interview with Entertainment Weekly that the Truman Show was like a Chaplin thing with funny characters and whimsy and laughs, but with serious undertones and issues. And, uh, you know, we mentioned earlier this was his first his sort of transition to dramatic roles. Uh, he took a pay cut to appear in it, taking a paltry $12 million <laughs> instead of his customary $20 million. And this is my favorite part. Supposedly, people on the set were banned from uttering catchphrases from his past silly movies. So I guess somebody stopped them. Anyone? That's good. Somebody stopped them? That's good. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I desperately crave validation. Uh, Jim Carrey, apparently, kind of, there was some friction with him and Peter Weir during the shoot. Jim's contract at the time, perhaps unsurprisingly, is this massive star, gave him the um, power to renegotiate aspects of the script, to ask for rewrites. And Carrey would later admit that he did have a bit of a temper on the shoot. He said, there were a couple times in the film when I got pretty angry, and Peter is just a gentle soul. And I am most of the time, unless I think people are endangering people. Weird thing to add. But Peter would say, boy, there's a monster inside you that is very powerful and you have to be careful how you lose it. This is getting weird. Uh, But they they eventually became close, especially after we're kind of put carry on a longer leash, let him improvise a little bit more. Um, the most famous instance of said improvisation on this sh- on this shoot were the mirror scenes in which he uses soap to draw a space helmet around his reflection in the mirror, and proclaims the planet Trumania. Uh, sure, he claimed that this was actually something he did at home, uh, drawing soap masks on his bathroom mirror and doing characters, which I completely buy. Um, sometimes I would do a whole bodysuit or a big frilly dress with a wig and then put myself into it. He would say, "Yeah, weird dude, Jim Carrey." Yeah, God, more dad stuff. Uh, Carrey also drew on memories of his father to uh, create the character. He would later say that the repeated catchphrase, good morning, and in case I don't see you, good afternoon, good evening, and good night, was the kind of thing his dad would say because he was the type of guy who, quote, wanted people to feel covered because he was Canadian, and that's their deal. Carrie would later tell Vanity Fair, my father's demeanor was Truman. He used to lean in when he would say, hello, how are you? He'd start laughing even before you told him how things were. He was just a very affable, beautiful soul. I wanted it to be a tribute to him, so there are little moments throughout the movie that are so my dad that my family would say, oh, you were doing dad. Which is cute. But yeah. man, Canadian comedians and their dads. Good lord. Next we're going to find out John Candy's entire career was an extended f*** you to his father. <laughs> well, this brings us to the character of Kristoff, Truman's lord and protector. 
In many ways, he's Truman's foil because his character, when he's being interviewed on that chat show by Harry Shearer, I totally forgot Harry Shearer was in yeah. this. Uh, it's noted that Kristoff fiercely guards his privacy, which is hilarious because he set up this man who's on public display 24-7. Just thought that was interesting. Dennis Hopper was originally cast in the role of Kristoff, <laughs> but Jesus apparently Christ. the crazy bastard energy on the set between him and Jim Carrey would have been just too much because he departed in the middle of production. But beyond the fact that he left the movie, it gets a little fuzzy in terms of details. Hopper later claimed that he was fired after two days because Weir and producer Scott Rudin had made a deal that if they didn't both approve of Hopper's performance, they would replace him. I've seen other sources say that Hopper quit much longer into the shoot. Interestingly, Dennis Hopper went on to accept a supporting role in Ed TV in 1999, which is about <laughs> a regular Joe Schmo staring in a basically a reality show of his life. So I'm going to interpret that as a giant middle finger to the Truman Show production. It's like, I'll make my own damn normal guy in a reality show movie. <laughs> God, can you imagine a meeting between Jim Carrey and Dennis Hopper? Not enough cocaine in the world to do an <laughs> imitation of those two men in a trailer together. Good God. God. But he did Ed TV. And now over to an arguably much better Ed, Ed Harris. He was hired at the last minute. Uh, in an almost literal sense, the last minute. He said he was hired on a Thursday and had to report the work on a Tuesday. And in between, he had to fly to New York for a prior commitment. So he had next to no time to prepare, which is maybe why his initial thoughts on how to play Kristoff weren't so great. Uh, I guess early in the production, he planned to play Kristoff as a hunchback, which would provide a backstory for his overzealous drive to give Truman a perfect life. He had a bad childhood, so he wanted Truman to have everything perfect, everything idolized. But I guess Ed Harris changed his mind after trying on a prosthetic hump and realizing that it looked not good. Um, so, interestingly, and perhaps appropriately, Jim Carrey and Ed Harris never met on the set of The Truman Show. Oh. I guess Hopper was supposed to shoot all of his elements last, so Carrey was already gone by the time Ed Harris got there, which I feel like serves the story that there is this disconnect between yeah, Truman, Truman on Earth and the great God director in the sky. But while we're on the topic of dark backstories, like this dark backstory for Kristoff, I want to talk about Truman's best friend in the movie, the character known within the show as Marlin. And something I never picked up on until watching this movie recently was that the people in Truman's world, his wife, Meryl, his best friend, Marlon, they all have real world names. I just assumed that they were people who were being themselves in Truman's dome world, but were like aware of the premise. But that's not the case. So the actors in this real life, like, you know, oh, no, I've gone cross-eyed. You know, the, the, what, we're, we're, you and I have a podcast and are talking in now are an actor playing an actor which is tough to pull off a lot. Again, all this meta stuff. And so all the actors in real life put a lot of thought into their performances where they're playing an actor. And so the real life actor, Noah Emmerich played an actor named Lewis Coltrane, who was playing the role of Marlon Truman's best friend. And Emmerich said that he came up with his own backstory for the character. He'd been on the show his entire life thanks to his pushy stage mom, who sold him into this unreality and sacrificed his childhood for the sake of becoming a TV personality. So adding to this emotional turmoil, this actor, Lewis Coltrane... Named uh, for two jazz icons. Yes. He grew up on the show, and he felt a genuine friendship with Truman. And he felt 
really burdened by keeping this secret from this guy who was authentically his best friend. And Emmerich said, My character's in a lot of pain. He feels really guilty about deceiving Truman. He's had a serious drug addiction for many years, been in and out of rehab. And you don't really see any of this in the final film, but there are a few deleted sequences where Lewis openly expresses remorse for what he's doing. And in one scene that didn't make the final cut, during the big manhunt for Truman throughout the town when Truman's making his escape, Lewis slash Marlin sees Truman making his escape and does nothing because he wants him to get away. Uh, interesting to note that the Truman Show is studied in ethics classes, especially media ethics for all the terrible stuff that the actors who are in Truman's world are forced to endure, including Truman's wife, Meryl, who is played within the movie by the actress Hannah Gill, who is played in real life by Lenny. <laughs> You weren't kidding about the cross-eyed thing. Yeah, during the shoot, the cast members lived in the homes found on location. We'll get to the location in a minute. And Laura Linney bunked with uh, Holland Taylor, who played the character of the actress playing Truman's mother or the actual Truman's mother in the show. No, she is an actress playing Truman's mother. Truman's mother. Okay. Uh, she said they spent the bulk of their time trying to work out what she called the mental tightrope of playing an actor who's maintaining a character in someone else's reality. And she would describe it as not unlike playing a character in a dream. It's like sleight of hand, but sleight of mind. Sounds like a 70s prog rock record. <laughs> Being in the Truman Show was a sleight of mind trick. Uh, so she started out by developing the character of Hannah Gill, who's this actress. Laura Linney imagined, uh, unlike being this kind of 50s sunny housewife character on the show, the actress Hannah was like this mogul, like a, a, a hard-bitten cutthroat. Laura Linney would describe her as a rabidly ambitious, powerful woman. While not on set, my idea was she had this huge room with an enormous conference table, and she was just making deals left, right, and center, making an enormous amount of money. So she imagined she got a salary bump every time she slept with Truman, which, huh, or got a Again, successful product ethics. placement. Yeah, exactly. Or got a successful product placement on the show. I just think it's so interesting that all these actors work so hard to create this backstory for a character that almost never appears on the film. Like, you don't see yeah. this Hannah Gill character. The only time that she breaks as somebody other than Truman's wife, Meryl, is when Truman loses it at her and she screams, you know, I can't work under these conditions. That's it. So it was just so fascinating to me, the whole iceberg underneath that they've worked out who these people are that we, the audience seeing this film, never get to see. It's, it's interesting. Yeah. It, did you mention that Emmerich had pitched his character as alcoholic? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And I think he mentions that... Uh, We'll talk about the beer thing, but he says like that's why the whole beer thing is so conflicting for him because he his character had been in and out of rehab, so having to constantly hawk beer, just these incredibly deep like method backstory things for. Uh, anyway, yeah. So the product placement, Laura Linney's character's character on the show is a pitch woman. Uh, you know, she does these classic fourth wall breaks to the camera showing the three-in-one kitchen knives and the lawnmower. And even when he's in the middle of his, his you know, worldview starts to break down, he's having this identity crisis. She does the Coco hot chocolate brand. And she does those classic Vanna White showcasing <laughs> the thing that you win prize. And uh, Peter Weir's wife gave her an old Sears Roebuck catalog from the 40s and 50s. And so he was like, here, like, look how these models would pitch these products. And she's so good in it. Yeah. And uh, Jim Carrey agreed he would compliment the performance by saying she played it beautifully like some joyful animatron. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
All right. The actual name of that town of Truman World is Seahaven Island. That's the world within a world, the life-size dome soundstage that's Truman's universe. Yes. And so all the interior scenes in that are brightly lit because they wanted to remind viewers that in this world, everything is for sale. It's like a mall. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. The whole thing is way too bright and way too colorful, which is sort of the polar opposite of the initial dank 70s taxi driver New York City concept that they were going with. Craig Barron, who is the VFX supervisor in this, said that they studied Norman Rockwell paintings, which is really fascinating. And this is such an easy thing to see. 50s postcards of Florida or California with these big idealized paintings of the ocean. So crafting this look, their goal was to give the impression that there was like an art design or production manager team working on the show, which I think they achieved. And so they were all set to shoot it on a back lot. Weir had a soundstage booked at Universal, but then his wife, Wendy, who's the same woman who handed Laura Linney those vintage Sears catalogs, she told Weir about the town of Seaside, Florida, which is a master-planned community located in the Florida panhandle, which sounds like a special layer of hell. Uh, (laughs) Weir had checked out a few Florida towns before this and hadn't been impressed But as soon as he set foot in the town, he told his team, unpack our things. We've found our town. Uh, And they opened up a production office in town that very week. Uh, Many of the 300 extras used during the shoot, which was from December 96 to April 98, were citizens of this town. And they still get residuals, which I love. This guy was interviewed in uh, 2016. He said he still gets a bi-monthly check for $26 because Tinseltown, baby. Um, and all of them have uniformly nice things to say about Jim Carrey, which is adorable. This one kid said that, uh, Carrey would go and buy him ice cream and, uh, and do the Ace Ventura voice for him, which is funny considering they prescribed other people doing that voice on set. (laughs) The craziest thing about Seaside, Florida Congressman Matt Gates grew up there. (laughs) In one of those houses. No, not one of those houses. In Truman's house. In the Truman house. He was born in 82, so he wouldn't have been a teen when this movie was shot. And presumably living there. There's a sign still in front of this house that confirms that it is not only the Gates house, but also Truman's house. Ah, not enough therapy in the world to undo that knot. Truly incredible. (laughs) Jordan Jordan subtitled this next one, Life in the Dome, colon, The Gods Must Be Crazy. I I mentioned earlier about how logic was a big buzzword for director Peter Weir, and he wanted to make this world totally immersive and have everything planned out with all questions answered so that the audience could just get lost in it and just accept the fantasy, uh, which is a pretty tough fantasy to accept. And so I'd like to do a lightning round of all sorts of clever details that I'd never noticed about Truman's world, and they all just make me appreciate this movie so much more. Uh, the first one. You'll notice that in one early scene, there's a bottle of vitamin D on Truman's kitchen table. Vitamin D is something that human beings get in large part thanks to exposure to the sun. In this fake Sea Haven Island world, there's obviously no sun. So that's why Truman and presumably all the other actors pound vitamin D pills, you know, so they won't come down with osteoporosis or rickets or, you know, some kind of vitamin deficiency disease. But it's especially important for Truman because God forbid Truman die and the show lose their star and a small country's worth of people be out of work. Uh, the radio. Yes. The radio station that Truman listens to on his way to work only plays classical music 
and other material that's in the public domain so that producers on this reality show don't have to pay royalties or deal with the business and legal hassles of getting copyrights cleared to play this stuff. Again, it's a TV show broadcasting 24-7. You got to clear all the songs you play so you only play stuff that's in public domain. But Truman's not bored by it for two reasons. One is because this is the only kind of music that he knows. He's grown up with classical music and this kind of old-timey public domain stuff. He doesn't know any better. And the other reason is that there's only one radio station in town, and that's because the rest of the frequencies are taken up by shortwave walkie-talkies between the producers and the cast so they can communicate. And you hear, you see moments of that throughout the movie. So there's literally only enough bandwidth for one station. And... You'll also notice that there's only one TV station, and it plays solely old movies and I Love Lucy reruns. And Truman believes he lives in rural Florida, so this all scans. And the Florida thing isn't specifically stated, but when he talks about Fiji being as far away as you can get in the world before you start coming back, that indicates, if you look at a globe, that it's around Florida. That's interesting. Is is I Love Lucy's not in the public domain, is it? Was that because the studio owned it? No, in fact, I think they actually owned it. I think they were the first people to own their own. Um, huh. Yeah, they famously became one of the first people to make you know reruns a thing. Uh, they the studio was like, oh yeah, sure, like you can have this. Like you're going to want to watch this again. They yeah. basically single handedly invented syndication. That's wild. The one I always see is Night of the Living Dead, one of the most influential horror movies of all time, maybe the. But. Uh, George Romero never made a dime on that original movie because the distributors forgot to copyright it. So it's in the public domain. So you see it in all of these, you know, it's a quick thing you can throw on in the background of your film. Um, oh my such God. a bummer. Uh, we mentioned the music. I just want to point out Philip Glass has a cameo in the film. He's in the studio when they're, when they pan to the shot of musicians working on it, the Philip Glass is in there. Speaking of broadcasting, News was, of course, heavily censored in Truman's world, and usually it extolled the virtues of small-town life compared to the dangerous, gross, overcrowded, disease-ridden, troubled world outside of <laughs> New York. Haven Island. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> New York. Um, and, you know, you'll remember that there's a newspaper headline that reads, Sea Haven voted best place to live. You know, so the news is usually used to kind of deter Truman from his uh, his wanderlust, his desire to escape the place where he's been all of his life. And news is also used to explain away troubling questions that crop up in his life, like the sudden appearance of his father, which is dismissed as part of a homeless problem. There's another headline that's the homeless level in town is becoming a problem. Which is mm -hmm. something you wouldn't necessarily expect in such an idyllic town, but I guess they needed to explain away his dad reappearing. But this is just a, I, I, this is just speculation or a pitch. Do you think it's how they just that was like their clearinghouse for actors or explaining anything? They're just like, ah, oh, there's a homeless guy wandering around. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, well, I, I think we'll get to this later, but there, I think there was a deleted scene where Truman he like sees a jogger. And two days before, that jogger was a guy in a wheelchair that, like, bumped right. into him. Yeah. So yes, I yes, think yes, yes, there's, yes, yes. you definitely see moments of them, like, having problems when they start to recycle extras because he starts to notice. Um, further note yes. that the Seaside Times newspaper, if you pause it at just the right moment, is listed as volume 29 in Roman numerals, number 10,765, which means that if you account that it's a daily issue... Divide that by 365, it's 29 and a half or 29 and a half years, the exact age of Truman. Yes, Truman is not 30 Did you do that? younger than us. Did you uh, crunch no, those I numbers? Did. 
I didn't okay. crunch those. Numbers, Just check. No. I would. I would worry about you if you had done. But that. yeah, this. Well, somebody <laughs> else did. Yeah, which is means sure. that there's someone else like me out there, which is even scarier. <laughs> but uh, yeah, the newspaper started when he was born. It's a daily thing. So there you go. Uh, speaking of the newspaper, the kiosk where he buys it is called Lancaster Square, named for the actor Burt Lancaster. All of the places in Sea Haven are named for one Hollywood icon or another. There's Barrymore Road, and there's nods to Orson Welles. And then this even extends to the character names in the cast. His best friend's Marlon, Marlon Brando. His wife's Meryl, Meryl Streep. Lauren for Lauren Bacall. There's a Kirk in there. It's all Hollywood. <laughs> and it's interesting to see how the show within the movie, the Truman Show in the movie, the Truman Show, wrote in vacations for the characters. And Marlon's a big one. There's a scene where Truman talks about Marlon catching pneumonia as a kid and missing a month of school. That was most certainly a vacation. And there's also a time later in life when he talks about Marlon delivering chickens around the country for long stretches in the summer. Also, most certainly a vacation. So I thought that was interesting. But Truman, of course, can never take a vacation. And uh, they do this. They, I mean, the world building they, they put in this is just so incredible. Even when he visits the travel agent, the travel agent has posters of planes getting struck by lightning. Uh, <laughs> it could happen but, to you, it says. Yeah. But a, a little moment in the scene that, that is just also really fascinating. The travel agent, she says she's, I'm sorry for being late. And she's wearing a makeup bib, which is the bib that they put on actors in the makeup chair to keep from getting um, uh, makeup on their wardrobe. And she realizes that she has it and kind of hastily rips it off. I always thought she just like had lunch in her office or something. I never, never put that together until researching this. Uh, anyway, you uh, mentioned earlier that there are bits where actors are recycled. The bus driver becomes the ferry driver later and the jogger played a homeless man. So just all these little touches. It is so fascinating. You mentioned the it can happen to you, the kind of fear-mongering that keeps <laughs> him in the town. There's a the bridge on the outskirts of town. There's a sign that says, you are now leaving Sea Haven. And then in letters under it, it says, are you sure that's a good idea? <laughs> um, and the the motto in the, in the town center on the archway is, unus pro omnibus, omnes pro uno, which is one for all and all for one in Latin, as in... This is all done for the benefit of one man. Uh, the beers. We mentioned Marlin is usually carrying around a six-pack. It is always a brand of beer called Pen Pavels, uh, which is a fictitious brand that is used frequently in film and TV. You can see it in that 70s show, Parks and Rec, The Walking Dead, Cougar Town, Harold and Kumar, Donnie Darko, Modern Family. And um, it is just part of the Truman Show's extensive product placement campaign, which is... Uh, interesting because it's the also the beer at the bar the truman show bar um and <laughs> paramount execs suggested that they try and put real product placement in the movie which weir uh was like incredulous because he asked them if they'd even bothered to read the script because they missed the point of the movie which is unsurprising <laughs> for execs but the beer thing is interesting because the other one that i've seen all the time recently is heisler uh, which is a beer with a red label that you see in New Girl, Brooklyn Nine-Nine. And I was looking this up, and it's from a company called Studio Graphics. And they actually gave an interview to Thrillist in 2018, and they said that they were the first company to patent a fake brand, which is either for the beer or for Morley Cigarettes, which you will recognize as the uh, cigarettes from the X-Files that the cigarette smoking man smokes. So, yeah. 
And now we be as as we frequently do on the podcast, we begin to meditate on the nature of time itself. <laughs> yes. There is the small matter of time. There are some serious Truman Show nerds who get into some serious Truman Show nerdery here, and I'll gloss over it quickly, but it is really interesting. In the movie, an extra reads a newspaper dated Friday, December 13th. And that suggests that it's 1996 in Sea Haven, December 13th, 1996. But in the final scene of the movie, the security guards out there in the real world who are discussing whether or not anything else is on after Truman Show goes off the air, there's a calendar behind them that appears to indicate that it's May in the real world. So it's possible that the Sea Haven world is five months behind the outside world. And there are several theories as to why this is possibly done. One is that so that Kristoff could get product placement deals set in time for the Christmas holidays, which would then allow for sponsors to create real world as seen on the Truman Show campaign. So Meryl gives Truman a bunch of gifts at Christmas. There you go. It allows for... I love that, man. Right? Yeah. So many details. It's so good. But speaking of time, as as we often do, it's interesting, well, in relative terms, it's interesting to me to try to figure out at exactly what point Truman figured out the truth about his existence, or at least as near to the truth as possible. And some have theorized that it's the moment when Truman reunites with his father and begins to sob. And according to this version of events, He's crying not out of happiness that he's reunited with his long-presumed dead dad, but because he realizes then and there that everything's a lie. His friends, his wife, his family, even his father, who had been this kind of, you know, canonized figure in his life that he thought had died when he was a kid. Everybody's been deceiving him, and that's why he starts to cry. And you'll notice that all throughout the movie, Truman's wearing a large black diamond ring, which slipped off his father's hand just before he drowned, which I guess we should have mentioned this earlier. The thing that's really keeping Truman on this island is that he's afraid of water because he witnessed his dad drowning earlier on when he was a, a kid, which was the, the perfect emotional scarring to you know ensure that he would never dare leave. Keep you on yeah, an island. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> um, and so when his dad's about to drown, a ring slips off his finger, which Truman wears throughout his life. He wore it as a keepsake, but producers wanted him to wear it because it contained a camera. (laughs) And after Truman reunites with his father, you'll notice that he gives the ring back. Uh, And there are subtle little hints that the production team is getting nervous that Truman is piecing things together. And you can see Paul Giamatti, who's one of the producers of The Truman Show, uh, he's reading classified ads in the LA Times towards the end of the movie, because probably because he's worried that his gig's about to end. Um, we mentioned earlier, speaking again more of this you know, show within the movie and all the production challenges around it, we mentioned earlier that a major subplot in the original script of The Truman Show of real-world Truman Show, was Kristoff's insistence that Truman produce a baby so that the show could live on. It's like the royal family. You need, you need an heir. You need, you need an issue. And it's referenced in the final film obliquely, but it was supposed to be a bigger part of the plot, but it was left on the cutting room floor. And there's a deleted scene that features a meeting with Kristoff and his production team and the principal cast. And this is just after Truman loses it on his wife, Meryl, and she announces that she can't work under these conditions. 
Kristoff reveals that Meryl will not be renewing her contract and she's being written off the show, but they're introducing a new love interest shortly so that the first on-air conception can go ahead as scheduled and the show can live on. And Kristoff and the executives intend to start a two-channel broadcast format with one channel dedicated to Truman and the other channel dedicated to following his child. And this prompts the guilt-ridden Marlon, Truman's best friend, to ask, So when Truman dies, we just go back to the single-channel format, right? Like, he's kind of being sarcastic. And Kristoff doesn't reply, and his silence is deafening. And that's a deleted scene, but a very interesting deleted scene. But yeah, they ended up cutting out the whole need for a baby, because my guess is that it's just too creepy. Yeah, that's... That's dark. That's a bridge too far. Yeah, yeah, (laughs) yeah. But... Speaking of what happens when Truman dies, they almost don't have to wait long for Truman to die, thanks to his (laughs) daring waterlogged escape on the high seas or the tempestuous swimming pool, whatever it is that actually (laughs) doubles as the sea for Sea Haven Island. Uh, The boat that Truman sails on at the end of the movie is named the Santa Maria, which is the same name of one of Christopher Columbus's ships when he's sailing to find the so-called New World. So that's a nice little reference there. Truman's on his way to find his own new world. Uh, That's one of the more obvious signs, but there's one that's a little more subtle that I thought was interesting. The sail of his boat is marked with the number 139. And as with most details in this movie, that's no accident. It's thought to be a reference to Psalm 139, which was a Bible passage best known for its description of the relationship between humankind and its creator. And the words are, for you created my inmost being, you knit me together in my mother's womb, your eyes saw my unformed body, all the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. And this is just before Truman communicates with Christoph, his creator in a sense for the first time, the only time. Uh, And just think of Christoph's final words to Truman. I've watched you your whole life. I saw you take your first step your first word, your first kiss. I know you better than you know yourself. My relatives were Byzantine priests. I feel like this is coming through now. (laughs) Really? Yeah, they were, yeah. My great-grandfather was a a Byzantine priest, yeah. That's f***ing wild, man. I had no idea. Um, Speaking of uh, of Bible thumpers... One thing the movie is actually not about is abortion. I don't know how common that is as a theory, but Nichols in the BFI interview, I just love that he brings this up seemingly unprompted. He says, my favorite piece of fan mail was a woman who wrote to me and said, thank you because I know that this is an anti-abortion film and that Truman is a fetus sailing to escape on a uterine sea. And his response was, that's beautiful and it's messed up. <laughs> As you meditate on that, we'll be right back with more Too Much Information after these messages. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, And then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh my God. 
my friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. Every week, we'll pick a new song from the list and talk about their placement on the revamped 2021 list. We'll also have guests join us, ranging from the artists themselves to the producers or simply other writers like ourselves who voted on them. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to the Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern-day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside and Britney Spears' Baby One More Time. There's so many fascinating stories that have been forgotten, like Midnight Train to Georgia starting with a phone call to Farrah Fawcett, or how the Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs inspired Kelly Clarkson's banger Since You've Been Gone and Beyonce's Hold Up. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Elliot Connie, and this is Family Therapy. My best hopes, I guess, identify the life that I want and, and work towards it. i never seen a man take care of my mother the way she needed to be taken care of. I get the impression that you don't feel like you've done everything right as a father. Is that true? That's true. And I'm not offended by that. Thank you for for going through those things and thank you for overcoming them. Wow. Thank God for deliverance. Every time I have one of our sessions, our sessions be positive. It just keeps me going. I feel like my focus is redirected in a different aspect of my life now. So, how'd we do today? We did good. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy, Listen now on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Grab bag of other things that this movie is uh, ostensibly about or the themes of this movie. Antonio Gramsci's concept of hegemony in which films and television programs co-opt our enchantment or disenchantment with the media and sell it back to us. That is a a paper quoted from the Journal of Communication Inquiry. Um, Another one from the International Journal of Psychoanalysis states the um, progression of being an adolescent trapped in a familial and social world that eventually you escape and gain an authentic identity as an adult or a true man. So good job, International Journal of Psychoanalysis, for just hitting it on the nose there. Um, A Mormon writer compared Christoph to Lucifer, and he also said the conversation between Truman and Marlin at the bridge can be compared to the one between Moses and God in the Book of Moses. One C.S. Lewis fan compared Christoph to Screwtape, which is uh, from the Screwtape Letters by C.S. Lewis. That is um, the book about the devil and God writing letters back and forth to each other. Um, Thomas More's 1516 book, Utopia, a social 
uh, social political satire. You're nodding at that. I did not have an idea. Do you know about this? I don't. I know about Utopia because there is a, uh, not the Tyler Good Band. Um, there was a Utopian community that was actually, is actually just down the street from where I grew up. Um, and I think Laura Ingalls Wilder grew up there and my sister ended up getting married there and I've DJed some weddings there. So I know a little bit about the background. You DJed of, weddings at it? Yeah. yeah. Oh, well, yeah, that's now, amazing. Now it's a venue. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, the, the, uh, as okay. with most utopias, it didn't last. Um, ah, well. And now I played Baby Got Back there. <laughs> Speaking of the Christ. <laughs> Segway. Yes, it wasn't just Truman who nearly drowned during the tempestuous storm at the end of the movie. Jim Carrey very nearly died. Um, he went into great detail about it during an interview with Vanity Fair for the film's 20th anniversary in 2018. He said, I was wearing wool clothing, a big wool sweater, wool pants and shoes, and they had jet engines blowing on me. And they had these giant wave machines that were creating gale force waves. And I guess they had divers stationed around in case he was ever in trouble. But when he made the agreed-upon sign of I'm in trouble, which was a clenched fist, they assumed he was just acting. To which I what say, <laughs> maybe get a better sign than a clenched fist when you're trying yeah. to hold on to a boat that's being tossed around like a cork on a high sea. Um, okay, All anyway. All stunt, stunt coordination things are just baffling to me. They're like, in scenes where people are being strangled in like horror movies, they're like, oh, just tap three times on me and that'll be my signal to stop choking you. And it's like, what do you think people You're are doing when my they're air preventing... Supply. Like when people are being preventing from being strangled, they try and batter the person who's doing the strangling. Like, think of it, come up with a better, whatever, Hollywood. More like a Holly well, weird, am I right? <laughs> uh, well, you mentioned about Jim Carrey, Jim Carrey getting angry on set because he was worried about people's lives being in danger. Maybe it was this because he talked a lot about <laughs> it and he has more to say about it and he still sounds pissed. He said, I went under, I had no breath left and I was drowning. I was under the water at the bottom of the pool and with the last breath, with the last hint of consciousness, I just spun and made a couple of gigantic strokes towards the back of the storm and came up outside the storm, gasping for air and exhaustion. I almost died. That was the real deal. <laughs> Jesus. And from Jim Carrey almost drowning at the end of the movie, this brings us to Titanic. <laughs> uh, the arc of the universe bends toward the arc of your universe bends towards Titanic. Yes, but in here, I don't know. It, it is connected. Uh, Paramount had originally scheduled the Truman Show for release in November of 1997, but they held it back until the following summer, both to allow for more time in post-production, because it seems like the kind of movie that would need it with all the weird lighting on Seahaven, but also so it wouldn't get eclipsed by Titanic at the Oscars, which is interesting because Titanic itself had been pushed back from the summer of 1997 to December so that it wouldn't compete with the Harrison Ford movie, Large Plane. Did every single movie, was every single movie in the mid to late 90s impacted by Titanic somehow? I, I guess it would. It's the biggest grossing movie of yeah. all time at that point. Uh, but when uh, producer Scott Rudin showed the Paramount CEO Cheryl Lansing a rough cut of The Truman Show, he advised her to have an ambulance waiting outside the screening room in case she had a heart attack. Because <laughs> over the fact that they had blown the $60 million budget on what was basically an art film... And I guess the the first cut was not great. Lansing said she hmm. was not impressed. She's quoted as saying, it's not unusual to have a bad first cut of a film. 
it was unusual to have that bad of a first cut, I have to say. <laughs> but despite that bad rough cut, The Truman Show impressed audiences all over the world when it was released on June 5th, 1998. People loved the innovative concept, but Jim Carrey's performance also earned rave reviews from even the toughest critics. Yes, I'm talking about the thumb tyrants themselves, Siskel and Eber. When they reviewed The Truman Show on their show at the movies, they not only gave the film two thumbs up, but they also gave an on-air apology to Jim Carrey for saying that he would never have a career after they trashed Ace Ventura Pet Detective, the movie that Aww. got him the gig on The Truman Show. <laughs> um, All right, well, so this movie comes out and actually picks a lot of awards, uh, nominations, doesn't win, Best Director, Best Supporting Actor, Best Screenplay, all at the Academy Awards, didn't win any of those, did pick up Best Actors for Jim Carrey and Ed Harris at the Golden Globes, uh, along with Best Original Score for my boy Philip Glass. Congratulations to him on that. Um, let's take a look at the box office. 264 worldwide. Pretty good. Honestly, I'm shocked that didn't merit the Truman Show 2 electric boogaloo. <laughs> like, Scott Rudin was like, boy, we gotta make some hay out of this. You know, we mentioned this earlier at the top of the episode. The Truman Show was released right on the cusp of reality TV that was kickstarted by stuff like Big Brother and Survivor. And I would argue, who wants to be a millionaire? I think that that kind of fell under the reality show umbrella because people were just kind of watching the money and watching people's lives be changed or the, the, the hopes of people's lives being changed by becoming a millionaire. Hmm. I think it was less about trivia. I think it was more about watching people compete for this life-changing thing. You know, you know, Jeopardy, you win money, but you don't win a life-changing amount of money all in one episode. But on this, you could. So I would. I have a strong case. We should do an episode on Who Wants to Be a Millionaire. I have a strong case that that played a crucial role in kickstarting the reality show craze that continues to this day. Um, anyway, The Truman Show on some level obviously helped create a market for this new type of television. It gave producers a shorthand, really. Um, and perhaps the most extreme version of reality TV following around the same time as The Truman Show is a Japanese show called Sasuni Denpa Shonen. And mm -hmm. it actually premiered a few months before The Truman Show was released, so it wasn't 100% influenced by it. But it had seasons that went afterwards. We'll say it was influenced by it because the story is too good. Um, and I just really wanted to share it. A man won a lottery to receive a showbiz-related job. That's in quotes. This showbiz-related job required him to live in an apartment for a year with absolutely nothing, and that includes no clothes. Everything that he had, he was required to win from mail-in sweepstakes contests. And the object was for him to earn $10,000, or a million yen, in sweepstakes winnings, which he did after 335 days. Almost a full year. He lived in front of the camera, and the only possessions that he had, he won via sweepstakes. The only other thing that he had were stacks of postcards and magazines required for entering these sweepstakes. He wasn't given food. He survived on water, and he lost a great deal of weight at first. Eventually, he won sodas, a bag of rice, and some dog food from sweepstakes. And at what point he won a stuffed animal, which he began to speak to and refer to as his sensei, kind of like Wilson in Castaway. <laughs> the only clothes he ever won were women's underwear, which were too small for him to wear. So he remained naked. And due to his nudity, 
there was an eggplant cartoon graphic that covered his genitals whenever he was on camera, <laughs> earning him the nickname Nasubi, which is the Japanese word for eggplant. He won other prizes that he was unable to use, things like movie tickets and a bicycle, which would have required him to exit his apartment, and he was not allowed to do that. Uh, when he won <sighs> a television set, it was useless because there was no cable or no antenna hookup in his apartment. Why was there no cable or no antenna hookup in this apartment? This is where it starts to get really messed up. This starts? Ma- well, okay, this is where it, it, it goes into another level. This man believed that he was being recorded and the show was going to be broadcast later once the footage had been gathered and cut together and presumably he would have some kind of say over what was used and how it was presented. No, unbeknownst to him, this experiment, their words, was being live-streamed the whole time, with footage compiled and re-aired at the end of each week, complete with frequent sound effects, often added to highlight his sadness and frustration. So, the producers didn't give him cable because they didn't want him to realize that he was already on air. And I don't understand the legality around this, but it's just tremendous. And we're just getting started. Oh, yes. This Kafka-esque, old boy-style nightmare just gets worse. This is directly from the Wikipedia because God knows how we'd improve on it. Quote, Upon reaching his goal of earning $10,000 from the sweepstakes, the man was clothed and blindfolded and taken to a surprise location. He happily went along, believing he was going to get a special prize for his year of hard work. After they removed his blindfold, he found himself in South Korea, where he was shown around town and then taken to another apartment. He was once again asked to take off his clothes and challenged to enter sweepstakes, this time to win enough money to afford a flight home. Ah! It it gets worse. It gets worse. When he quickly met this goal after several weeks, it was subsequently revised. They moved the goalposts on him so that he now had to afford a ticket in first class. When he won, he was blindfolded again and taken to another apartment where he looked around, sighed, and took all of his clothes off, at which point the walls of the apartment fell away to reveal he was in a TV studio. (laughs) Naked. Naked. Live studio broadcast. He was confused by this because he didn't know it hadn't been broadcast yet. This took... He didn't know it had been broadcast. It... It took 15 months of this man's life. His diaries on the experience became a bestseller in Japan. The TV show broke all records. 17 million viewers every wow. Sunday. He was traumatized by it. He, he said he became uncomfortable in clothing for months afterwards. For, for the first six months, he had difficulty carrying on conversations after it. And, then, but, and, and he was unable to capitalize on this. I don't think he had much of a career afterwards. Trying to break in. Remember, he was trying to break into Hollywood. was the whole goal of this f***ing nightmare. Um, and he tried to capitalize on this during the early days of the COVID-19 lockdown. But he tried to pitch people like, hey, look what I went through. You can do it too. <laughs> I didn't read all of that before I read it. How is that legal? I don't know. All right, folks. Speaking of mental illness. (laughs) Yes. Uh, The Truman Show's (laughs) legacy lives on uh, not only on 
traumatizing television shows, but also in the mental health community. (laughs) According to a 2008 New York Times article, psychologists in both America and the UK have recognized a delusion developing, particularly in schizophrenic patients, which they've called the Truman Syndrome or Truman Show Syndrome. Uh, And this is where patients believe their lives are reality shows. And reportedly, many patients specifically mention the film in therapy, almost as if its existence justified their beliefs. One patient climbed the Statue of Liberty, believing that his high school girlfriend would be at the top, which would be the key to him being able to leave the show world. Uh, Yeah, the story of one of those suffering was documented in a 2013 article in The New Yorker by Andrew Morantz under the somewhat glib title, Unreality Star. And in the piece, there's an Ohio college student, and he's described as disassembling thermostats around his parents' house looking for cameras, and even taking classes designed to make him a better performer. Um, Thankfully, the man was able to learn more about his condition and get treatment, and apparently he's doing much better now. This might be the darkest episode that we have done. I didn't expect that. I mean, it's all fun and games when you talk about the influences and everything, but the second this crosses into the real world, good God. I can't believe you, they, in like retrospect, it's kind of horrifying that this movie came out and validated all of these people. Like a Scanner Darkly or something. Do you remember that movie too, man? Oh, I saw, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that's also Philip, that's also Philip K. Dick, actually, Mm -hmm. now that we mention it. And it's just like, yeah, man. Can you imagine having like a nascent mental illness and seeing a big Hollywood blockbuster that validates it? Sorry. Uh, Outside of the Truman Show's legacy is that it uh, has given us a tremendous nightmare world from which we (laughs) will never escape. A Kafka-esque hellhole in which everyone must always be closing, always be contenting. Mm. And, uh, you know, everyone's the star of their own horrible little f***ed up show. God, this is depressing. (laughs) Sorry, folks. Come back next time for more Disney hits of the 90s um, and fun stuff. Yeah, I mean, the Truman Show basically gave us a shorthand for the always-on culture where we don't know if we're living for ourselves or living for an audience on social media or, in some cases, actual cameras, given the plethora of reality TV shows out there. In 2015 alone, on just cable, not counting streaming, there were 750 different unscripted series. So presumably that number has ballooned, especially with streaming. Um, So this is not an especially new observation, but in many ways, we're all Truman. But, (laughs) But also we're all in on it. And screenwriter Andrew Nichol, who kicked all this off, later observed... I have a very hazy crystal ball. I certainly didn't foresee the onslaught of so-called reality television. I doubt the film had much to do with it. If it did, I apologize. (laughs) (laughs) And Laura Linney, who played Truman's wife, or the actress playing Truman's wife, I'm not going to get into all that again. She's remarked (laughs) on The Truman Show. Uh, She said, The Truman Show is a very foreboding, dark movie. And unfortunately, our world has gone even way beyond that. Interestingly, Jim Carrey doesn't see it that way. He says that he sees The Truman Show as a hopeful movie. Uh, He said, everybody at some point gets to the point where they have to separate themselves from what people want for them and what they want for themselves. And in order to do that, you have to go into unknown territory. You have to take a risk of losing everything. And you mentioned this earlier about the potential of doing a sequel for The Truman Show. Jim Carrey was asked about that during press for Sonic the Hedgehog. (laughs) 
<laughs> two ends of his personality there. Um, and his answer about this and sort of about Truman's fate once he left the Dome world was really interesting, I thought. He said, I think Truman's show is something that exists on a micro level now. He says this in an interview with Collider. It was kind of a story about that on a macro level, but now everybody has a subscriber channel. Everybody has their own little Truman Show world. There's something to be had there. I'm often asked about what I think would have happened to Truman when he goes outside the wall. It took me a while to realize that basically he was alone out there too because everybody went back inside. They all wanted to be inside the dome. <laughs> what do you think, Heil? Should we crack open a couple pens, Pavel beers, and contemplate the meaning of our own fundamentally meaningless existence? Thanks for listening, folks. This has been too much information. I'm Howard Cycle. And I'm Jordan Runtog. We'll catch you next time for hopefully a brighter episode. See you under the dome. <laughs>information was a production of iHeartRadio. The show's executive producers are Noel Brown and Jordan Runtog. The supervising producer is Mike Johns. The show was researched, written, and hosted by Jordan Runtog and Alex Heigl. With original music by Seth Applebaum and the Ghost Funk Orchestra. If you like what you heard, please subscribe and leave us a review. For more podcasts on iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Friends, it's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. This time we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to the Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your hosts of TMI. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. Listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. That's right.